From the Clock Tower Mountaineer, this is the C.S. Lewis Book Club. I'm Dan. And I'm Alex. Welcome to our book club, and thank you for joining us in season two as we make our way through the Ransom Trilogy. In this episode, we are talking about Out of the Silent Planet, chapters 15 through 22, plus the postscript. And spoiler alert, if you haven't read along with us to this point yet and would like to, now's a good time to pause so we don't spoil the chapters for you. Our next episode will be the first seven chapters of Paralandra. It's crazy that we're already through this book. I know. This is our third episode of Out of the Silent Planet, more than we did any Narnia book. But I just feel like it's so rich. (laughs) This last section actually felt like, oh, I feel like we could spend several podcasts on this section. Maybe we have to go back to it. It's too good. Yeah. We'll (laughs) see. No promises. So housekeeping? Yes. I'd like to uh, read a review. This is from the um, Apple Podcasts app from the username that one kid with the thing i'm nervous i I don't even know what you're going to share yet (laughs) is this a one star or five star that one kid with the thing says after a five star rating all right awesome meaningful conversation about my favorite author and his books i'm a longtime lewis reader an informal student of his work and this podcast speaks to the part of my soul that longs for narnia and the north I appreciate your discussion about themes that run through all Lewis's life and work, not only the Chronicles. Dan and Alex, thank you for sharing your thoughts and conversations here. Well, you're welcome, that one kid with the thing. Uh, (laughs) That's so so uplifting to me. Yeah. It feels like at least for that one person, we're, we're doing what we set out to do. I would really like that one kid with the thing to submit some comments that we can share on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. I want to hear that one kid with the thing's voice. Unless that thing, ooh, that that's like a six word story, his name, <laughs> that one kid with the thing. I'm already like intrigued, but maybe it's none of my business. If that, the thing doesn't get in the way of your voice, so you just please send in a voice memo and we'll find a way to share it on the, the podcast. The review is almost so good that I'm wondering if you wrote it. <laughs> Between the name and the, and the perfectness. What's the thing that Apropos. you noticed with me? Is that what gave it away? No, I don't know. <laughs> All right. I will read the summary for today. Ransom has come into the cave of the Sorn Agre. He discovers that the Sorns are just as amiable as the Hrasa, and Agre accompanies Ransom to Meldalorn even letting Ransom ride on his back. At Meldalorn, Ransom meets with Oyarsa. Weston and Divine are also brought before Oyarsa. Ransom translates as Weston gives his defense, betraying a might-makes-right ethos. Having made his assessment, Oyarsa sends the three humans back to Earth. The journey home is tortuous and difficult because of the relative positions of the Earth and Mars, but they make it back to Earth. Ransom reveals through Lewis his agenda in relaying his story to us, the readers, and Lewis shares a letter of his correspondence with Ransom. All right. Uh, Themes. Anything stand out to you, Alex? You have bravery. I do. I want you to talk about bravery. Yeah. There's a lot of discussion, and it feels like there's been a lot of discussion throughout this book, but I noticed it as it led up to Oyarsa and the conversation there around fear and bravery. And I think we talked about fear as one of the themes earlier. Yeah, last week. And so with bravery, I thought it was really interesting that 
that's what's pointed out to Ransom as his one sin was having a little too much fear. And that once he was made a little bit more brave, he would be able to, I think the Yarsa said he was going to disembody him and then he could go on to Moeldil, right? And so I, I just thought that was really interesting. And there's just the whole lead up to it of this fear and bravery and Ransom trying to overcome his fears as he goes through this journey and how... One of the big ways he does that is anchoring himself to his resolution that he makes back when he's with the Hrasa. And so you just see that played out all the way through and leading up to that conversation. And I thought it was really interesting. Ransom notices that both Divine and Weston are brave, even in their kind of silly, futile way, because they're being brave against some idea that they've in their own mind, you know, they think they're in hostile country and they're probably in more friendly country than they've ever been in their whole life. Yeah. But he does, he doesn't neglect the fact that they're going about it in a pretty brave way. Oyarsa identifies like the primary weapon of the bent one, our Oyarsa, as being fear in the, in the worst times. We'll get there. But yeah, the bravery, overcoming fear, it, it kind of sounds like a little bit when um, when Jesus calls Peter out for being faithless after he's just taken steps on the water. It's yeah. like, I feel like Ransom's gone through so much trial about his fear and he's overcome so much. And obviously, Oyars is not just accusing him of fear in the moment. He's, he's Alex overcome. wagged his finger when he said that. <laughs> <laughs> I want all listeners to know that unless you've seen a uh, this podcast with your eyeballs and seeing Alex's <laughs> hand gestures as he talks, which we actually should probably do a recording of the Instagram and do like a really sped up version of one hour of you moving your hands. I think people would really appreciate it. I don't get a lot of exercise, so it's, it's got to happen here or not at all. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Anyway, bravery. I think you nailed it. I think that's exactly like a huge theme, especially for the end here, but also throughout the whole book. Also throwing in one that I didn't write down. This the last section is funny. This was laugh out loud funny yes. at a bunch of different parts where I, I saw them. I was watching the movie in my head as I'm listening to the audible, just this whole scene and and Weston talking to like the Harasa that's asleep. And I mean, there's just so many really awesome or after Weston is dunked in the water a bunch of times and it describes his face of someone who's been tortured and yeah. is a, anyways. You laugh so at many, torture a lot, I think. So many good, uh, I'm just uh, kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, sorry, we'll we'll get to specifics, but I just thought this was a humorous section. Yeah, it is. It is very funny. A lot of that is in the translation of what we as humans think is so magnanimous or bold and, and intrepid of us. And then when you translate it to the, sim you have to simplify it to translate it. It just seems silly. Wait, that's a cool point though, that when you're speaking with a totally different race, and maybe we're going way too hypothetical here, but like people who have zero, um, the only thing you share in common is your mind, your ability to think, your, uh, what's the word we use for Narnians, uh, your talking beasts. Mm -hmm. Then the only way to communicate is with as truthful and simple as you possibly can. The theme I have is logic. Logic. Finger pointed to the sky. Yes declarative logic like uh professor kirk it's funny weston tells the oyarsa that he or through tells ransom to tell the oyarsa that he's not there to 
you know, get into this logical, I can't remember what the term he uses, but to play at logic or whatever. And it's funny because you would think that that was his weapon until it stops working for him. And so he just, he accuses the Oyarsa of just trying to be too logical. <laughs> and if you can't understand, yeah, you know, his motivation for the perpetuation of his species and the love of kindred, then I can't explain it to you. And so it's funny how, you know, if, if all you're using intelligence is as a tool, then when that tool stops working, you, you shift, you start to try to use another tool and that one is ad hominem. So logic actually, and this is, we've talked about this before, but the people who, uh, they, they leave the metaphysics of kind of a religious mysticism of it often cite science as their justification but then they stop being scientists about it. And you can see where we're, re we're all really just so guided by our desires and we see the world the way we want to see it. Um, I think logic generally and going through these conversations, uh, Weston talking to the Oyarsa, tr Ransom translating it and dumbing it down so it's intelligible and then the Oyarsa responding is very logically um, set up. It's very easy to understand. And it makes things a lot clearer, I think. Well, should we take a break and then jump into the chapters? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So, chapter 15, he meets the Sorn. What stood out to you about this moment, the interaction? He has just a general sense of relief. All this fear he's realizing was misplaced that the Sorns, especially if the Sorns turn out to be like Algre, and, and they do because he meets a lot of them. They take a little, um, uh, the, the journey from Algre's cave to Meldalorn, they stop for the night in another cave with a couple other Sorns. And they have a, a, a very, he has a very similar experience as he had with the Hrasa. It was much more uncomfortable this time, I think, because it was a little more, more... penetrating questions. Yeah. And he had to get into some of the things he's most embarrassed about with the human humanity. Right. They, <laughs> he realizes that he doesn't know human, human history very well. It's funny because later it's pointed out that at one point he was describing the production of paper. And that told them something about the flora. He mentioned and fauna. trees in the in the production of paper, and yeah, <laughs> and the and the Sorns are so logical that they're able to to glean out of his descriptions much more than he even says. Yeah, and um, they learn more about fluid dynamics than he knows, even though he's the one providing the information. So the, you really do see the Sorns as being the the logical minds. That's why he, the intelligentsia, right? The, that's why he thinks that they must rule. But we learn more about all the different, the three different types we, of, um, of now. We don't get a lot about the Fiffeltrigi, but uh, we do with the encounter on Meldalorn with Kanaka What did you learn about the Sorns from his interaction? One thing that stood out to me was when he's talking to the Sorn about the Harasa. And once again, he goes into his questioning, trying to understand the economic, political structure of the planet. And the Sorn, it almost sounded condescending. 
when he talks about how the Harasa just care about their poems and fishing and whatever else. And it's when he's talking to him about the oxygen apparatus, he's like, you know, the Harasa would have sent you up here and you would have died and they've written a poem about you and it would have been just as good as had you survived. And to them, that's like, they, he, he, he sees that that is the difference in the way they think. But still, what's so cool is the way Lewis shows how each one of the species can contribute their strengths to their world and to what that they live in so selflessly, so honestly, because no one's, no one's making their contribution out of any other place. Then it makes sense that the fifth tree would care about your watch or it makes, or, or that the harasa are going to be the ones that, of course it's a harasa that, that paddles the boat across the, the river here. That's what they do best. And I, I love it. It was, it actually made me feel I hate the word jealous whenever my brain wants to go to jealous, but it made envious. me made me feel envious of imagine what our society could be if we all contributed that way. So, so it was just, I think what stood out to me was that the Sorn saw the Harasa and what they were good at. And obviously they are the more intellectual group that's thinking about um, how things, how they can invent things and improve things. And naturally in our world, that would probably put them in the same place that Ransom's always trying to put them. Uh, but that they they don't because they don't consider themselves the ruler. That's Oyarsa. And they... Yeah, because of the darkness of our minds, it's hard for us to see observation and now not fill it with value-laden judgment. The Sorn is making just a factual observation of Harasa that Ransom already knows. He just experienced, you know, maybe the oversight or undersight, I don't know, the, the lack of insight that the Ross gave him for, Hey, you're going to go to this cave with, and you'll meet Algre and you might die doing it because you're going to go to the very edge of the atmosphere. Like they don't really take, and it, that would happen to a Ross too. So they should know, well, should see that's a value statement should is. And so it's hard for us to make, um, judgment observations without them being value judgments. Yeah. Ransom gets defensive for the Hrasa. Even says, I think the way they think about death is right. Maybe dying and having a poem written about you is just as valuable as having lived and not had to <laughs> go through that process. He's defensive in vain, I think, because Algrey meant no offense by it. And he's right. And he's not thinking less of the Hirasa. Maybe, maybe he's just appreciating the value that the Sorns, or I guess I almost want to say Cerrone. Sorns is like the, the fear human <laughs> name for this, for them. And then Cerrone is what they're known by in the language of the. Have we not become Krasa. Malachandrian enough? Yeah, that's right. Come we're on. Malachandra. So <laughs> we're going to call them Cerrone. <laughs> but what, what about you? What, what did you love about? I'm assuming I'm, oh, I was a leading question. What did you love about the Cerrone? <laughs> <laughs> you brought up last week. Ransom thinks of himself as intelligentsia. He's a don at a, at a Cambridge college. I wonder if he expected to resonate more with the Cerrone and found out that he didn't. Yeah, that he actually was defending the, the Harasa, like you said. Yeah, yeah. He, he realized that they're just as amiable as the Harasa, but he, um, he kind of ha had more affection. Maybe that was just familiarity. Maybe it's just because he spent so much more time with Harasa that he preferred their company or maybe the company of a Haras is one of their strengths 
and where they lack in understanding whether or not your lungs can handle the extremities of an atmosphere, at least they're good company. And also, I've, I've known very intellectual people that it is, and I've known them for a long time, where it does feel like it's somewhat difficult to develop that brotherhood type feeling, type yeah. relationship with them, because they're so disconnected from their hearts, maybe, yeah. <laughs> that it, it makes it hard for them to, to really connect with you at that level. Yeah. And maybe, um, maybe we like to identify ourselves by what we are insecure about. Maybe Ransom, this is true about me. I posture like an intellectual because I know I'm not, I, it's, it's an insecurity. It's a, it's a point of insecurity for me. I get defensive. So I learn what the words are. I learn how to pronounce the things I, I'm there with the answer. But it's all because I'm kind of backpedaling, trying to do the things that I want to do. But I actually, I'm very emo emotional as a person, if that's the counterpoint to intellectualism. I've taken Myers-Briggs tests or, or tried to identify myself in color codes or whatever. I'm always, I always lean very heavily to the more emotional, emotional side. So I think I would have an experience very similar to Ransom. I would think that I'm going to where I want to be in the group of intelligent beings and realize I did not belong here. I much prefer the emotion saturated and poetic type of species. Yeah. And if I was on a strange foreign planet, I think the harasa is where I want to start. Yeah. <laughs> I want to start with some people. Even can... <laughs> visually, even visually, they just look like tall seals or otters. Yeah. Otters. Seals or otters. Yeah. And uh, the description of the Sorns is a little alarming. He even says that about meeting the Fiffletrig, that he's really glad that he didn't meet them first. Yeah. One thing that I liked was when he is with the Cerrone when they stop for the night. And once again, he walks in and he sees the younger Cerrone helping the older Cerrone. And he's like, oh, these must be servants. And, and later on realizes they're pupils. Yeah. And this is, if if we kind of didn't put it in a theme, I guess, before, but... The beauty of a civilization or a people that has a righteous leader, a good leader, who they all defer to as the actual ruler. And I know that can be distorted and bent in so many different ways and has been in human history. So we maybe associate anytime it's, it's, there's a king or a ruler, it's typically, I think, a little bit, especially here in America, a negative. <laughs> uh, but I see so much freedom in this structure and so much beauty in this structure because they all defer to Oyarsa as the ruler. And I was trying to think how I can apply that to my life. Like where, where, and, you know, obviously for us, we have Christ and we try to, if, if we all see him as the real ruler in our lives, it can help us develop some of, some of these amazing positive outcomes and benefits from living our lives. So we're directed towards someone greater than ourselves. Yeah. We talked about hierarchy a lot last week and that, that, that power hierarchy that Ransom keeps trying to force what he's observing into, because that's the language he knows being a Thulcandrian is you have the power, the ruling class, and then you have these other classes that are val as far as value judgments, lesser. And that's the difference between a servant and a pupil. A servant will stay a servant. They're not on the process of climbing that 
that hierarchy. No progression. But a pupil, a student, is only lesser than the master because they're at the beginning of the journey, not because they are qualitatively different, but because they're younger and that's it. And to understand the difference between uh, a hierarchy of power that is unfair, unjust, unchristian, seeing that hierarchy in your family, and not just because you see the evils in that type of hierarchy throwing out hierarchy altogether. Hierarchy is important and it's true. You have children and they are lesser than you, not because they're of different quality, but because they're younger and they're on the path to becoming just like you are. To ignore the fact that they have less experience would be believing a lie. So learning how to see our position on a journey and really revere and, and appreciate people who might be above us in the hierarchy because of experience and not feel diminished by that. And I think that's where you get to a lot of the problems with Weston thinking that he's at the total fringe, the, the boundaries, the he's boldly going where no man has gone before. And so he thinks that that means where no intelligence has gone before. He's erroneously equivocated man's intelligences with the possibility of intelligence. He can't help but think that every other intelligence is lesser than him and therefore a lesser value than him. And well, it makes him sound kind of stupid. Oh, I love this because this is when Oyarsa tries to force him into being a little bit more logical and he says, okay, so you only care about humans, your race. But then he says, okay, well, you've said your race is going to change if it needs to go to other planets and it's going to be bigger. <laughs> He's like, okay, it's bigger. Yeah. But, but he gets to, well, if you, honor, if you loved the mind, which is, should be what makes us human more than whatever our form is, because you've said you don't care about the form, then you should love all other minds that you interact with the same way that you love your own mind. Mm-hmm. And, and that hits at what you're saying to me. Yeah. He's illogical. He's, he has this idea of what he wants. And this is how the Oyarsa sees through him. That in his perspective, Weston is incapable of even imagining intelligence beyond himself, which is a very childish type of understanding. It's the teenage kid yelling at their parents that they don't understand. Well, that's an illogical statement because they've been teenagers too. That's just the way the time works. <laughs> maybe they've forgotten. Maybe some adults are a little less adept at re-entering that state of mind. So there might be some truth to it, but never to the point where it actually validates a teenager thinking that adults are stupid generally. This just reminds me of when I was 19 or 20, I came home from college or 21 and came home from college and my 15-year-old brother, we're talking in the car as we're driving, and he looks at me and he's like, you don't understand what it's like in high school. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I'm 21. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, that's, that's the problem is empiricism, believing the evidence of your senses, you're never going to be able to understand what you don't understand. And so you need logic more than empiricism to say, yesterday was I was stupid. Today I'm smarter. Tomorrow I'll think that yesterday I was stupid, which is today. And that's a hard thing to reconcile with. I'm stupid right now. There's growth. There's 
there's a trajectory that I can shoot past even my own ability and just hypothesize. I might not, not know exactly what that looks like, but I need to yield to its possibility. And this is what Ransom has been struggling this whole time with understanding something that looks primitive to him and yet is unintelligible as far as ethics. It's unintelligible because it's actually beyond his understanding. And as he grows and learns and gets more empirical evidence about living with them and interacting with them and just growing to love them, he starts to believe out of logic that which he cannot quite experience. And that is a goodness beyond his own. Once he trusts that, he can yield. And it actually makes him wise in a way that <laughs> there's the line that I think is so funny when Oyarsa is talking to Ransom and says, and even though we saw that the, you know, talking about Weston and Divine, even though we saw that they were stupid, we didn't quite know how bent they were yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, because, so this is a good point. You talked about knowing you're stupid today as being a difficult thing to accept. Mm -hmm. But why? Because the way we just talked about stupid or lacking in knowledge is that you're just, the only difference between you being stupid today and less stupid tomorrow is time. Mm -hmm. And that shouldn't make you feel any, why would time make you feel? It's like, whether you're 10 or 11, like, there's no difference in value of that person. So why would it make us feel, why would it make us feel lesser to know that we're stupid today? We're trying it to, it shouldn't. Yeah, we, we should what I'm saying. It shouldn't, but we're <laughs> trying to place ourselves on this value hierarchy all the time. And if I'm insecure about my value, my worth to other people, I'm looking at self-esteem rather than self-worth self-worth that doesn't come from my own merits, merits, but by the merits of someone greater than me, every acknowledgement of my imperfection can feel like I'm not enough. This is the, the idea that, that Carol Dweck in mind, the book mindset brings up. We all have this kind of tendency, a default to what's called a fixed mindset that we're trying to just identify ourselves, how we fit, how we don't fit in our communities, in our families. And, and if we're really stuck there, then every challenge to a skill that we have not developed is a threat. And we need to practice a growth mindset. The hierarchy exists. It just does not exist in the way that you think it does. It exists because there's a time period where we're embryonic beings in the way that our intelligence can progress. And I'm using intelligence in more of a broad term, not intelligence as that guy's smart, but that even, even skill building, learning to ride a bike is neural pathways forming. It's learning and, and an increase in intelligence. You can't just understand that physics until you experiment with it. But if you get on a bike and you can't ride it for the first time, don't be so stupid as to think, oh, I'll never be able to ride. And this is very difficult, a difficult concept. And as anybody who's a parent, you've had these interactions with your kid who is maybe hesitant to start developing a skill because they don't come at it at expert level. And it's hard. It's hard. And so to communicate that language, everybody has to engage with a skill they don't have at a novice level. At some point, Michael Jordan or Messi 
tripped and fell on their face when they were learning how to walk. And their parents didn't say, well, I guess we have an uncoordinated kid. We should give up on them. Yeah. <laughs> All skill building is learning. All learning requires effort and it requires growth and it's uncomfortable. I don't know if it's as uncomfortable as Ransom's experience climbing up to the mount the mountain to the cave of Orgre or Algre. But that shift in understanding the way hierarchy works, because if you say we don't have to live in a hierarchy, no, that's not true. We do have to. We can't help it. I want smarter people being judges and running the city and whatever else. Sometimes we have this idea, well, if it's new, it's going to be different. It's going to be better. Yeah. And no, it might help to have someone who's experienced building roads, deciding how the road should be built in your city. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if we get obsessed with lesser virtues, even a virtue of like equality, equality is virtuous in, at least as an ingredient to the way that we approach interactions with each other. But if it becomes an oyarsa to itself, it becomes the, the ultimate value by which we judge everything else by. First off, it's a lie because there's people further down the experience journey. And, um, it all, it will force us to believe lies. And once you've entered that space of believing lies, you become a dupe and you start to ignore logic and logic actually starts to become dangerous and a threat to you. So accept the fact that we're unequal, not unequal because of fixed, immutable characteristics, but in growth. And it's totally okay. I'm not even equal to me yesterday or tomorrow, but all things, all that considered, let's try to treat each other with equality. And we'll get into that equality as a theme more in the next two books, Th this whole process of going with ransom in these paradigm shifts is very instructive to me. I might think that I've overcome a lot of my views of society and my own virtue and the virtue of an ethics of humanity. And then I go through this and it's like, oh man, I see the world way more like ransom does than like a Sorn or a Hross or, or a Fiffletrick. One other thing I want to touch on before we maybe go to a break. When Ransom looks through the telescope, the window, and sees Earth. Yeah. And it says, there in that little disc, he sees London, Athens, Jerusalem, Shakespeare. This was the bleakest moment in all of his travels. And it's that, feels like that pale blue dot realization of everything that was important to me that I've worried about my entire life encompassed in this tiny disc in space. Yeah. Well, Yarsa warns Ransom not to take seriously numbers and sizes yes. later, that he doesn't even talk to the Sorns that way because we can't help but get give reverence to nothings like that. And the reason that that perception is so bleak. He's so defensive of humanity. He doesn't want to think the world is lost or silent. And so he keeps uh, approaching those realities as they're presented to him with a little bit of reluctance and, and trying to push it away and feeling nettled and, and uncomfortable and insecure. That pain, that bleakness that he feels looking at the earth is an important pain for the growth of understanding what is truly great. 
It is not the things that we as humans think are great or are prone to think are great. I think of Morpheus talking to Neo in the Matrix and saying that humanity was all, um, you know, congratulating themselves, all excited about the development of AI yeah. as the precursor to all the atrocities that followed when he's giving Neo the history of um, the real, I think is what he calls the, the surface of the real. Um, that idea that uh, we, and, and we'll see this a lot more with Weston, what humans think is our own accomplishments almost is just the spinning of our wheels to overcome the effects of the fall in a way that an unfallen species will think, Man. oh, you must do that because you don't have an Oyarsa. You care a lot about moving heavy things around. <laughs> right. The Sorns are, <laughs> you know, they, they mentioned that like, oh, a lot of it is locomotion, huh? And I'd say in our modern day, just from technological advances, it's like processing speed in computers, finding factual answers, chat GPT, memory. Efficiency. Uh, yeah. Being able to store things. they Because he even mentions that too. They don't have a lot of books because Oyarsa remembers it. And so they can spend their time not so worried about outsourcing our brain's capacities and more in living with each other and being kind to each other. All right. Should we take a break? Yeah. Okay. Welcome back. Uh, one part that stood out to me when Ransom is with the Fiffeltriggy and he's talking about why everyone speaks Harasa on the planet. And the Fiffeltriggy explains that each each species has their own native language, but they've all learned the Harassian language because that's where the poetry is. That's where it makes the most sense for them to speak in because it's the language that accommodates communication per... I don't know if communication is the right word, but they, they, they've decided that that's the best language for them all to use. And so they all use it. And I, I thought that that was an interesting point that there, there's always this separation between what each species does best and then what together communally serves everyone the best. And I like how it kind of bounces back and forth between those two things. Yeah. And later books we realize, uh, we're told and, and Ransom realizes that what he learned was actually, I think it's called Hilariot Arbol or something. It's like, it's this, uh, <laughs> the language of, of old solar. You keep busting those out. <laughs> well, I actually think they said that one wrong, but, um, the language old solar and the, and the Hrosa speak it. I, I don't know if that's like just revisionist or if he had that in, in mind and the Fiffeltrig was just guessing that way. But what the Fiffeltrig says is what they speak, the language that's most important to them is what's said in sun's blood and star's milk and the, uh, in stones and their art, their physical art is kind of their language. It's, it speaks their, the language of their hearts much better than any verbal language. And that the Sorns, their wisdom is such kind of like what you were talking about. That it works in any language. It will work in any language. And we'll see that Weston's wisdom does not work that way. His wisdom is, or knowledge is taking advantage of the nuances of English. And they just, and, and by language, not just the English language, but also the human ethos. Yeah. It doesn't translate very well. 
I, the way Lewis sets up that meeting between Weston and Theo Yarsa, making Ransom the translator mm-hmm. is awesome. And I think this is exactly what you're hitting at where, because Weston's coming in with his language and his viewpoint and his approach, and then Ransom has to try and translate it in a way that the Yarsa, oh Yarsa and the people are going to understand. And it makes it just glaringly obvious all of these things that we're talking about, Weston, like his problematic thinking, his his illogical arguments or justifications for what he's doing. Uh, I, I wonder if that came to Lewis as he was writing it. It just was natural. Or if he put some thought into putting a translator in the middle of this is going to illustrate my point perfectly because it feels perfect. Yeah, it is a it is a very clever move. Yeah, clever move, Lewis. You dog. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, see, that's why I get confused. Did he have this all outlined with all these tricks or is he just such a genius that he he just wrote and all these natural tactics of teaching start to come out of his pen? We talked about the I do, we do, you do in, in teaching. That element of I do, we do, you do comes up so much We in the, the you know, quote unquote chiasm that I forced the story into last week. And uh, just this, he gets an experience of observing something, doing it with his Hrosa or Sorn compatriots, and then he has to go do it alone. And he has to like experience the real effort. After he learns the lesson, he's immediately put to the test. And it just, it's the perfect process. And if we were, if we're smart and we're going along this process with ransom, we'll start to notice where we lack and where, where we need to put more effort and and practice. And, um, I think that going through ransom, talking to the Oyarsa, I, I, I just can't help but see how many ways I'm bent in the way that I see the world. That's what I was going to ask you. What are, what are the nuggets of wisdom that you get? I, Obviously, this whole book builds up to this meeting with Oyarsa. And so what are the nuggets that you pulled from that ransom meeting, him or her? Him, because him. it's Malachandra. Okay. Mars is a masculine <laughs> there we go. entity. So it's, uh, this one's a him. Okay, so meeting Oyarsa and mm-hmm. then also with Weston and Divine. What were the parts that stood out to you? <laughs> the false virtue, the might makes right ethos and how, how much that... we you look at the awful history of the 20th century and you can see how that ethics plays out in such a bloody and horrible way. And so we like to think, oh, we're past that. No, we're starting to see the same sort of thing happen again, our modern variations of eugenics and, and the way that we see each other and the value of other, of, uh, that was kind of like what my daughter says, their chothers. Um, (laughs) the value of each other and how they can help us find our identity, ignoring that they have identity as well, forcing other people into our minds as playing at being Oyarsa, the, the selfishness, the self the self-centeredness, um, not being able to, to look at people and immediately try to evaluate their worth. Assuming that where I disagree with somebody means that that, uh, that person I disagree with is stupider than me. I get there this, really this quickly. Social Darwinism, right? Yeah. Right. That if you're at the top of the pile, 
life does that deliberately. You're at the top. Congratulations. You hit the genetic lottery and everybody else is the dross that's burned aside as pro- we make progress Yes, as the best of humanity. Right. That, that obsession for, of progress for progress sake and seeing something, the noble savage, seeing this, this primitive species and thinking patronizingly, oh, they're doing a lot with the little they have. And it's like, they might actually be, to my eyes, more primitive because they know more than me or understand more. Do you remember, what's the part that when Ransom tries to translate it, he he stumbles, he he gives like two or three different translations? I I think it's talking about the destiny of man and life being... The reaching for the beyond or something like that. Yeah. It's it's putting like poetic language to this motivation of reaching for something great. And even though he's talking to the face of something greater than him, he can't see. That's what it is. He thinks of it as being, <laughs> you can start to get this kind of, I think it's this false mysticism. You know, it's important to find the logic. Okay, today I'm stupid. If yesterday I'm, I was stupider than today, I'm stupid today compared to myself tomorrow, hopefully. Um, and then shoot it off. And then you just think prog- progress. That trajectory itself is the beauty or the wonder. And then therefore nothing will ever be beautiful and wonderful because you've identified not where the location you're going to everything's stupid and expendable on the way to that g- goal out hypothetical there like ransom says to west and you're willing to do anything here and now on the chances that my, men might live you know this undefinable and unprovable abstract good you know when you were hesitant to in, before to say doing something for the greater good because we know what that type of motivation leads to what the Westons of the last century had used that motivation to do. And we still do it. I still do it. I still try to think, well, it's okay for me to be cruel to somebody because I know better. And and if everybody behaved like me, they would get this, they would realize my dreams of the future, but all of our dreams are not real. And you know, the, the Schrodinger's cat, the, the cat's both dead and alive. Nobody knows. We have to play it out. So we have to at least be good to each other now. Don't push the button. <laughs> don't, don't, don't spill the vial and kill the cat. We jumped over one of the funniest parts to me when Weston's got the beads. Yeah. And he's doing his dance in front of him <laughs> and everyone's laughing at him. And yet he just, and I love how Ransom says, I know Weston and the rules that he operates in. And he sees based on his research of how you, uh, advanced species should interact with a savage uh, species that like these are the this is what his science tells him is the right thing to be doing right now and so he did it into, to the point of exhaustion yeah and to know a personality so well that uh, this scientific man is so blinded that he's just going to keep going and yeah. like not reading the room and it was the most successful yeah. uh, attempt <laughs> yeah. ever ever made on Malacandra yeah yeah I about that. that's awesome uh, what else? He identifies, and, and we've alluded to this. You see this coming up in, um, I mean, obviously this is the, one of those moments where everything or everything Lewis believed is present in anything that he said. The false morality 
of identifying one singular virtue and putting it above all other virtues and sacrificing all other virtues to that one virtue. A little blind Oyarsa. Yeah. That uh, most people feel morally justified for the villainy that they that they commit on each other. Um, yeah, nobody thinks they're the villain. Everybody thinks that they're doing the thing, the right thing. And it's okay. It's okay to sacrifice lesser claims to great claims. And all of our claims are great because they're ours. What's important to me is more important than whatever is important to other people, because I can use the tactics of weaponized logic and even logical fallacy in order to make what my desires are more important than what, than what anybody else's desires are. He and says that the, that the our bent one, our, you know, if it's Satan or, or whatever, even if those fit, there's a, an attempt to say that Ransom kept trying to find the equivalents in our, in our own mythologies to what these beings are and that they don't ever quite fit. Everything we know about things that are beyond us are only an analogy and to be aware of that. But the our bent one, one of his uh, tactics are you thinking that being a broken being broken isn't as valuable as being bent because if you're bent he can perpetrate so much more evil yeah is to bend us to give us the fear of death to make us smart enough to see death coming but not smart enough to endure it hmm. that that's what the oyars identifies as one of the our bent ones tactics and how much time we spend trying to prolong our lives or to make even, I know I'm going to die, but at least I can make life better for my kids better, you know, and when I use that term better, better for my kids than other people's kids. And to have this trajectory and kind of this nebulous motive and just go all out on that motivation, never really addressing whether that emotion motivation is good. You know, think of Ian Malcolm saying, you're so pre preoccupied with whether or not you could. You didn't stop to think if you should. That's right. <laughs> I love that monologue. That monologue is from Ian Malcolm in Jurassic Park is so informative just to the way that our motivations can can run away with our hearts. And they don't let it, they they can give us the logical, you know, or or illogical defenses to make sure that we never readdress what the why. Why are we doing it all? Well, you've only got this mortal life and you're going to die after 80 years if you're lucky. And so in that process, are you spending your time trying to prolong those years, just trying to spin your wheels, trying to accumulate all this wealth that you would never be able to spend in a lifetime? Or, or are you going to spend three years trying to extend your life by one? Because that's what it takes. Or are you going to look at your kids in their eyes and help them learn how to be decent to each other, to be on the same team? Are you going to think that, you know, get really overcome or hypnotized by the Greek term arete, which is excellence for excellence sake, and take that so far that you really impose on your child this desire and this necessity to develop certain specific skills. Think what does, I mean, my, my sport obsession is baseball. 
Baseball is not really a generalizable skill. It only works in that one context. And the more time that I focus on that, if it takes away any time from me developing myself as a person, I can't get that time back. Now that search for excellence, there is good in that. But if I let that consume all the other goods that my, t- my limited amount of time has to offer in my mortal life, I might become, you know, or I might have become the best baseball player in the world with kids who don't even have a relationship with me. Obviously that's a overly specific, but you can see that type of silliness, that type of stupidity to try to force into our lives by motivations that seem good on their face but require the sacrifice of all other goods to them. This reminds me, I read an article the other day of a, of a tech CEO who sold his company for tons of millions of dollars, and then he's now dedicated his life to longevity. And he blogs about it, and he, every, every gram of food this guy eats, he catalogs it and then runs the test to see, you know, how does it change his his blood what a content and all that kind of stuff and he's set the record for the most someone's been able to like decrease their uh, apparently they can like look they can assess you and say okay you're 41 based on what your body says not based on how many times you've been around the sun and he's been able to decrease it from where he started to where it is more than any other human being alive that they've ever tested or something but when you read this guy's schedule for how much he has to stretch and exercise and plan his diet out. I read it and and apparently he has kids. I was like, this is your full-time job. This is, you're spending eight hours a day on longevity to the three years to get to the one year. It's, yeah. This I feel like is a pandemic. I mean, you see, frankly, the way parents push their kids into sports before their kid even has a concept of caring about what the sport is. You see it in the way we're obsessed with longevity and some of these things that just they they are eat, consuming our entire lives instead of the pursuit of character, of, of good, of all of these other goods that we that that I think is part of having a balanced life. Even a good that is beyond our understanding. It's hard for us to think about what is good, what is the best thing sparse it out logically and try to understand what should I, where should I be spending my time? To some degree, we're going to come to only the things that our minds are capable of understanding, but we have a model in something greater than us. And that model said, love God, love your neighbor. It doesn't seem very utilitarian. It doesn't seem like it's going to pay out. And maybe as soon as, if you keep trying to make yourself make those things pay out. You become prosperity gospel minded. You're kind of defeating the purpose. We're cubs. We're not, we don't have the fullness of understanding. Luckily our logic can point us in the direction of something greater than ourselves. Once we do that, you know, we might not, we might need to start, stop thinking about it so much. I worry so much about the way that I communicate value to my kids because kids always, kids will accept the world that's presented to them. I have so much responsibility and so does, so does every parent. How do we define the world to them? 
Are we going to define it to them in this hierarchy of value or a hierarchy of growth? I don't know what the answer is there. I don't know how to do that exactly in every context. And luckily I have models greater than my own understanding to help give me at least some inkling. Oh, I need to discipline my child. Okay. Do it with love. What does love mean? Well, this is what it meant when I re read it in the, in the scriptures. How do I do that? I need to use some of my, my intelligence, you know, and, and it, maybe it does require intelligence and good analysis. Even the Oyarsa says to <laughs> ransom when he realizes that the etchings on the stone must be older than even the, the Tholkandra. And he said, and he's overwhelmed by the, the length of time. And he says, I see you are now. You are using your intelligence. Intelligence is a gift. Are we using it to understand, to point us in the direction of something greater? Or are we using it to just flex and, and show that we're better than each other and just be these lobsters in a bucket and trying to climb up over each other and pulling them down and throwing to the, them to the bottom. And I see that in myself. That's my bentness as I'm, I spend way too much time trying to like stand on the top of the lobster mound and flex. And how do I help my kids understand reality to the point where they're not as prone to do that as me? I don't know. I think me going along this journey with ransom is helping though. Agreed. Any other parts you want to make sure we get to before we hit the audio clip? Weston is, is pretty convincing. I think there is a good, he's not broken. He's bent. According to the Oyarsa, he's curable gives me hope. Um, I don't know how to look for the Westons and divines in the world. Cause that's one of the commands that Oyarsa gives ransom. Watch out for them. He doesn't just mean those two specifically, but we'll see what that looks like in several different faces later in that hideous strength. One thing he identifies Weston when he gives him the Yarsa gives him a second chance mm -hmm. to explain himself. He says, you know, explain yourself. Let me see if there's anything more to you than just an animal mind. And he finds something, right? Which he describes as fear, death, and desire. Mm -hmm. And so... What does he find in Weston that is more? Uh, love of kindred. Mm -hmm. Even Ransom says, that is a good. Yeah, it's just an inferior good and you've made it your ruler. Yeah. Divine was broken and... All he had was greed. Yeah. He becomes kind of funny. Comedic character. He Tragic, but yeah. comedic. Yeah. So we're going to listen to chapter 20 and on the audible version, it starts at minute 13. <laughs> this is the Oyarsa talking to Weston and doing, I think, a pretty good psychoanalysis. I see now how the Lord of the silent world has bent you. There are laws that all now know of pity and straight dealing and shame and the like, and one of these is the love of kindred. He has taught you to break all of them except this one, which is not one of the greatest laws. This one he has bent till it becomes folly, and has set it up, thus bent, to be a little blind Oyarsa in your brain. And now you can do nothing but obey it, though if we ask you why it is a law, you give no other reason for it than for all the other and greater laws which it drives you to disobey. Do you know why he has done this? Me think no such person, me wise, new man, no believe all that old talk. I will tell you. 
He has left you this one because a bent now can do more evil than a broken one. He has only bent you, but this thin one who sits on the ground he has broken, for he has left him nothing but greed. He is now only a talking animal, and in my world he could do no more evil than an animal. If he were mine, I would unmake his body, for the now in it is already dead. But if you were mine, I would try to cure you. The thought that comes to mind, listening to that again, and just as we've talked throughout this whole thing, if you think you're wise, like Weston just said, if you honestly deep down think that you are intelligent and wise, you are also saying, based on how we're defining it, that you're finished. Yeah. Sad. <laughs> Sad. Sad. Ill- illogical. <laughs> unempirical. Unscientific. Yeah. Yeah, don't ever think that you're finished. I don't know. That's, I mean, it's that type of absolutist statement that I just made seems itself dangerous. How how about this? Don't think you're finished while you're alive. Yeah, that's, I mean. (laughs) Whatever happens after, we'll figure it out. But if you're not finished, you're not done compared to, it's that it's that subjecting yourself and humbling humbling yourself. I, that's something C.S. Lewis just undergirds everything with is this sense of humility, and how often he tries to point out the ridiculousness of not being humble. And I don't think you can read Narnia. You can't read uh, Out of the Silent Planet and not walk away seeing how ridiculous it can make you look if you genuinely believe you're wise yeah. and you're done. Yeah, wise enough, uh, smart enough to see death coming, but not smart enough to endure it. Yeah. It's a tough one. Enduring death. It doesn't just mean enduring the pro- the moment of death. It means enduring what the fear of death compels us to do in life. Get over that sort of stuff. Yeah. That's why I like the memento mori. You will die. There's no way around it. Because there's no way around it, you only have this amount of time, like Gandalf says, and that's the only time we, we, all we can do is to decide what to do with that time. Don't spend it trying to fight death. That is futile. Yeah. I'm excited to get into Paralandra. We'll start to see more mythological ways of those types of eternal ideas. He then ran, um, then Lewis comes in in chapter 22 and starts to talk about this as, as though we're all related, relayed to us as a mythology kind of, or that it actually happened and Ransom's not his real name. He sticks with Ransom. I think a lot of this is kind of pointing to, if you, if you decide to read the Dark Tower, that kind of is the next thing from this type of idea that if there's more travel, it won't be space travel, but time travel. Dark Tower kind of tries to go at that in a, in an interesting way. Um, but we stick with Ransom and he's called Ransom and we just assume that that's his name with the next books. Um, what did you get from the postscript? I think I was coming off the high with Oyarsa, so not as much as 21 and 22, or sorry, 2019 and 20. But him pointing out, I mean, he points to the where language is incapable of actually describing experience, lived experience. Yeah. And he talks a lot about that, just how you were never going to understand the smells of Malacandra. You were never going to understand what it was like to 
swim with Hyoi, I think. And so, so yeah, just, just that difficulty of communication. And so him recognizing that and also giving a nod to the fact that, uh, you know, we need to appreciate that as a reader, that this experience is going to fall short from what the writer is trying to convey. Right, that the lessons are far more important than the specifics almost. Yeah. That's not what Mars is really like. We actually have a rover up there or two. I'm not even sure. People As of 1997. Be, yeah. I looked that up after I read that. <laughs> I don't. I you don't. probably already knew that. Yeah. <laughs> so just appreciate life and learn to love it and to live in the now, I guess, if that's a not too pithy. In the now. <laughs> in the now. Oh, yeah. There you go. Maybe that's an intentional play on words. I didn't, ever, I didn't think about that until right now. But so. what about you? Was there something... Yeah, he's, he's doing that thing again where he's like, even to assume, I, I don't remember what the towns he says in England, that he compared this, the amount of space that he occupied on Malacandra. And does just assume that that is everything. We've got it all understood. I just think that theme of when you see something, don't f- get fooled. When you start to understand things, don't be fooled into thinking that you have it all understood. Don't stay on Mount Stupid of the Dunning-Kruger effect. And he just does it in such a fun way. Even talking about the red sorn of the northern deserts, who's a corker by all accounts. You know, it's a fun way of saying, you only got a glimpse. And when when he talks about the bodies of the Eldils not being subtler, but just being non- or not being able to be sensed by our senses that the, the great beyond is not lesser or just ethereal or just um, abstract. It's more real and therefore deeper. This idea that the Oyarsa and the Oyarsas and the Eldila can live in heavens, and that doesn't mean they know everything that's going on in the heavens in the same way that we live on earth and don't know everything that's going on on earth. They're in that different realm, but it's even deeper and more solid and more complex. Even light's a flowing thing that, that is even a dark thing, if not illumined by the great, the greater or the swifter and just that expanding of the mind. And I hope that our minds just keep getting expanded to the point that it almost feels overwhelming. Like we've gone too close in our journey back to home past (laughs) the sun. And, uh, anyway, further up and further in. Today's episode is sponsored by the word stupid. So <laughs> I think we overused that. <laughs> uh, thank you for being in our book club. We hope you'll continue with us as always. Next episode, we will cover the first chapters one through seven of Paralandra. And if you'd like to participate with comments, questions, criticisms, or corrections, you can email us a message or voice memo at bookclub at mountainair.media, M-T-N-A-I-R. Please subscribe, rate, and review on the podcast app. And when you're reviewing, if you don't want to leave a review, you could just tell us our your favorite Crossian word. Or species. Ooh, or species. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>